in episode 96 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Thank you all so much for coming out uh, on a Monday night to see Michael Shannon. I'm really excited about this. It's been in the works for a long time. Um, he's a movie guy, he's a theater guy, he's a TV guy, he's a music guy, and I want to like get straight right at the top some rules of engagement for tonight. So, there's a strike going on right now. There's two strikes going on right now. The writers, I'm a writer, and the actors. And uh, the Screen Actors Guild is on strike. The writers are on strike. And because of the rules of the strike, we cannot talk to Mr. Shannon about, hey, what was it like playing eh, in this movie? Or what was that like? So we're going to talk about acting. We're going to talk about theater. We're going to talk about his new movie, Eric LaRue, which he directed, so he could talk about that. Um, but we can't uh, say, hey, I've loved you in blank. Uh, talk about what it was like to be on that set. So in a way, we're sort of doing away with all those questions that you probably could see the answers to in other places. And we're going to have to be more creative. So we're just going to go by the rules. I am pro, you know, these guys. I'm pro-union. My wife is in AFTRA. Um, I'm pro-writers. I don't feel like, you know, they should be signing away their rights to have AI create a virtual Michael Shannon and start putting him in movies. So I hope these guys win. I want to do as much as possible. We don't want to get Mike Shannon in trouble. So that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to introduce him now. So if there are any weird pauses in the introduction, you'll know why, all right? Michael Shannon is one of Chicago's treasures, an Oscar and Tony-nominated actor who continues working in his hometown no matter how high his profile rises, which I think is really cool. He co-founded a Red Orchid Theater in Old Town and continues... and continues to act and direct there. He'll be appearing in Levy Holloway's Turret next spring. You may have seen him on stage, often in Chicago, sometimes in London, and on and off Broadway. He was in Tracy Letts's Bug and Killer Joe, uh, Martin McDonough's The Pillow Man, Craig Wright's Mistakes Were Made, which was a one-man show that he just carried totally, uh, Eugene O'Neill's Long Jay's Journey Into Night, for which he received a Tony nomination as Best Featured Actor in a Play. Um, he debuted on the big screen as the young about-to-get-married guy in... And he turned in standout performances in movies such as... And... And he was amazing in... And then there's the Best Picture winner. And then there's a really fun mystery one that he was really great in, too. He does so much different stuff. It's just amazing the, uh, the, the resume he has. And you guys know, you've seen him. You're here. You know what he's done. He's had two Oscar nominations for, you know, and, you know. And uh, he watched, you know, the one that won Best Picture. He was at the Old Town Tap. You know about that. Um, all right, so we're going to move on for that part. Uh, his TV work includes playing um, on HBO's... <laughs> and he starred in the Showtime series, as well as uh, a passionate music fan, Shannon portrayed, um, you know, the king in, in that one movie that he didn't sing in, and this uh, country singer that he did sing in, and totally moved my heart in, but I can't talk about it. But he did get an Emmy nomination for it, if you want to look that up. He also has sung the songs on this stage of the modern lovers, Neil Young and the Smiths, with Jason Narducci in his band. Um, 
And last night, how many of you guys were at Metro last night? All right. The last night, he, uh, Mike uh, and Jason were, had a killer band, and they played all of R.E.M.'s Murmur and Chronic Town and a bunch of other cool songs to mark Murmur's and Metro's 40th anniversary. R.E.M.'s Mike Mills joined them at the end, sang Harbor Coat. We could talk about all those songs and everything they did. Um, he's daring and unpredictable. He is a brilliant artist in so many ways, and we're proud to have him here. Let's welcome Mike Shannon. Bravo, Mark. Bravo. Oh, bravo to you, man. Well executed with the introduction. So, well, we're just winging it as we decided. We, yes, we put the guitar it. there too, just in case. So oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, one thing I learned recently was that you, at some point, worked at the Fish Bowl, which was like right across the street from where we are now at Space. And I used to go to the Fish Bowl, as, and then it was not the Fish Bowl, and then you because they had cats and stuff there too. Um, but like, what was going on in your life when you were working at the Fish Bowl? Because uh, this is obviously familiar haunts for you in a different context. Yeah, so I was living uh, in Evanston when I was sixteen. Uh, my father lived here, and uh, I was living with him, and then we decided that that wasn't working so well. So uh, I, I, I got a little studio apartment on Greenwood in Chicago, and I had to get uh, a job to pay for it. So uh, one of the first places I worked at was the fishbowl, but yeah, I was uh, pretty young. Yeah, I, was, I think I was 16 when I was working there. Yeah. So that was like a teenage job, not like you working there while you were already acting on stage or anything. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't really bro broken into the scene as of yet. Uh, I mean, I had worked. One of the uh, first jobs I had actually was when uh, the Northlight Theater moved into the Coronet Theater. I remember that. On uh, Chicago Avenue. They took that over, and I had a job uh, helping to wire the grid in the, uh, for the lights over the stage, which entailed me in the ceiling. Uh, if you've ever been in Cornette Theater, it was pretty high ceiling. And uh, I would uh, go on these tiny I-beams, uh, between which was just plaster Paris and wire mesh. And I would go from the booth to the stage in the ceiling, pulling very heavy cables on my back to, to, to wire up the grid so that they could have lights. So that was a, that was a fun job. Um, and then once I had managed to put all the wires in the ceiling, they said, well, that was really all we needed you for. So then I had to... Um, that was it? Yeah, I did. There was nothing else. I was like, well, you know, I, I like to act. And they're like, yeah, that's, good luck with that, buddy. Well, and now you're here, and where's the coronet? Exactly. So there you go. <laughs> so you, you lived in Evanston. You went to New Trier for a bit. I think you went to Evanston for a bit. Were you, did you have the acting bug at that time, and were you able to express that in school at all, or was that always something you did after school? Yeah, so what happened was, is basically elementary school and middle school I spent in Kentucky, and my father lived up here, and my mother uh, still lives in Kentucky. And after middle school, I decided, uh, I asked my father if I could come live with him. He was living in Wilmette at the time. Uh, so I went to New Trier my freshman and sophomore year. 
but I was a you know a, a, a small boy from Kentucky uh, walking into New Trier. I had never lived here before. I didn't know any of these people. Uh, I think at the time there were four thousand students there or something. So um, I didn't really uh, stand out much, um, and uh, I had a hard time meeting people or making any friends. But uh, I got on the speech team there, and um, they gave me a little scene to do from The Body, which is the story in Stephen King's Different Seasons that the film is based on. (laughs) And so uh, I did a scene from that, and um, I just fell in love with it. Um, that would, uh, and then I would audition for the plays in New Trier, but they would be like, who is this freak? No way. Um, and then after my freshman and sophomore year, I said, yeah, I've had enough of this. So I went back to Kentucky and my junior year uh, uh, got some parts and some plays down there. And then I came back up for my senior year. By, by then, my father had moved to Evanston and I went to ETHS for a semester and then I dropped out. But while I was at ETHS, I did my one and only Shakespeare play, which was Taming of the Shrew. I played uh, Baptista, the father of Kate and Bianca. And uh, the director was a fellow named Mr. Ditton, Charles Ditton. Mr. Ditton. Yeah. and um, Not Mr. Seaworth. No, 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 no. No, I dodged Mr. Seward. Uh, but anyway, uh, it was like a wild, the Wild West version. Ditton was very fond of the, the, the chaps and the mustaches and the hats and all that. So, uh, so I was, yeah, I was in chaps and a big cowboy hat, fake mustache, pretending to be the father of, uh, yeah, those people. Uh, Heather Burns was in that show. I don't know, Heather Burns, she's done pretty well for herself. She played Bianca. When you look back on those high school acting experiences, were they actually kind of formative, even though you're looking back and kind of laughing now? They were incredibly formative. Yeah, I mean, you know, at that point, it's all about gaining some semblance of uh, confidence to go forward, you know, which I didn't have a lot of. Those, those first two years at Nutria, I was just getting rejected constantly, and it, and even the first play I ever did in Chicago, uh, because what happened is, actually before I went to ETHS, I'd already dropped out. Um, I decided after my junior year that I was completely done with high school. I'd had enough. I didn't ever want to go to high school again. I came to Chicago, and I auditioned for a play that was called um, West Bank Story. And it was based on West Side Story, but it was like a, a Palestinian and a Jew that fall in love and da 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 da. And, um, and I got the part. It was in a little storefront theater. I don't even remember the name of it, but it was like folding chairs and clamp lights and all the rest of it. And, um, and I rehearsed for a couple of weeks. And then the lady who, who was directing it, who at first had seemed to be so fond of me, uh, one day at rehearsal, she said, I, I, I can't do this. I can't. You need you need some training. Like, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with you. And she just fired me. And so, um, so then I was devastated. And so I'd I'd been accumulating these little granules of confidence by getting these parts in the high school thing. And then it just evaporated. Did she give you guidance as to why? 
Uh, no, because she was an imbecile, obviously. Um, uh, she just didn't know what she was doing. I mean, looking back on her now, I'm like, oh, that woman just didn't know what she was doing. But, um, which is fine. There's plenty of people in this business that have no idea what they're doing. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I, that's when I went back to ETHS. No, the only thing she said to me was like, you know, go to school. Uh, because, I don't know, people think that you can learn things at school. <laughs> well, you got Cass and Tammy to the shrew. Did you, so what point did you have the acting bug and did you think, oh, this is something I want to do, like this is my passion, and was that strictly your passion or was also music something that you sort of aspired to at that point? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I started playing music a long time before I ever started acting, um, I started, you know, piano lessons. Uh, I sang in a Lexington youth choir in Kentucky. I uh, played in the orchestra. Um, then I, when I went to New Trier, I got into the jazz band. So, I mean, music was a, a big, big passion of mine. But um, what'd you play in the jazz band? Uh, in orchestra and jazz band, I played the bass. Um, the upright bass and also the bass guitar in jazz jazz band sometimes. Uh, but I don't know. There's something about theater, you know, because after I did Tammy Shrew and dropped out again, I went down and I auditioned for another play in, the, in, in town and I got it and I didn't get fired. And then I got another one and I didn't get fired. And the second play that I did... Uh, was in Evanston at uh, the Noise Cultural Arts Center uh, for the Next Theater. Uh, they had a tiny space called the Next Lab, and I did a play there called Fun and Nobody, and it was directed by Dexter Bullard, and, uh, and, and Tracy Letts played my father in the play. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, uh, and that was when I was still 16, maybe going on to 17. That's when I met Tracy, and that was basically... The, the seed going into the mud, you know, and then it just blossomed from there. So did you two keep in touch after that? Or like, how did that become this relationship that became so important to you? Yeah, I mean, Tracy's, Tracy's a guy that like you can kind of go in and out of contact with. He obviously, he's very busy. And when he's writing, he gets very focused on what he's working on. So I could go for long stretches of time without speaking to him, but then all of a sudden, you know, I hear from him. Like, uh, after Fun and Nobody, just out of the blue one day, uh, he gets a hold of me and he said, hey, uh, I've been writing this play. I was wondering if you'd want to do a reading of it. Uh, you know, I think it's at a good place and I'm really curious to hear it. And I, I, there's a part I was thinking of you for, and I said, okay. And that was uh, Killer Joe. So um, that was pretty significant. Uh, and it wasn't like we went out and had coffee every morning or something. I could go, like I said, long periods of time without seeing or speaking to him, but then just out of nowhere, he'd get a, get a hold of me. But he, you made an impression he thought of you for that thing he was writing, which was... Killer Joe, yeah, and then, and then Bug also, yeah. Well, Bug came. Uh, you know, the world premiere of Bug was in London. Actually, it wasn't here in the states, and it was because when we were in London doing Killer Joe, 
there was a, a woman named Rose Garnett who ran a little theater in Notting Hill called the Gate Theater. And she saw Killer Joe, I think a, a few times, and she got a hold of Tracy and said, I, I would love if you had another play to produce it at my theater. And so Tracy gave her a book. Yeah. And you premiered that here, there. You rehearsed it here, premiered it there, brought it back here, went to... Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the British premiere w w happened, and then nothing happened for a while. There was a production of it in D.C. and a production of it in Boston that I wasn't involved with either one of those. And... Um, I think the DC production was at Woolly Mammoth Theater. I'm not sure where the Boston production was. But um, they weren't, I, neither of those productions were particularly well received as far as I know. And then Tracy just kind of put the play aside uh, for a while. And, um, and Guy and I, Guy Van Swearingen, who started Red Orchid Theater, were talking one day and, uh, and it just dawned on us that it was insane that nobody in Chicago had done Bug. Like, Tracy had written this play. Nobody had done it. Um, and he's like a Chicago legend. So we decided that we should do it. And, and so we did. And that was in, uh, in 2001. Did Tracy ever articulate to you what he thought about, why he thought you were the right person for these plays? Because he really was casting you in these, you know, totally, I hate to keep using the word formative, but these important plays in his trajectory as well. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's easier to get that answer out of him, frankly, than me. Um, well, that's why I asked if he ever said anything to you. Yeah, I know, but I'm just saying, um, I mean, thank you, Mark. Thanks for clarifying. But uh, I'm just telling you, I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that question, I guess is what I'm trying to tell you. So he didn't tell you. That's a fact. That's I mean, right. well, I, I, I could speculate, but, you know, Tracy's, Tracy keeps his cards uh, pretty close to his, to his vest, you know? He's not... He swears that uh, neither one of those parts were actually written for me specifically. Although Rose Garnett at the Gate Theater said it would be lovely if the the play we did had the people that were in Killer Joe in it. But I don't. I think Tracy had already been working on Bug before she she asked him that. So. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't say. Well, I'll turn it around. What is it about Tracy's writing that you are able to act and embrace? Get inside. Hmm. I mean, the, you know, the answer to that is quite complicated. Um, there's not like a succinct, snappy answer to it. Um, I guess maybe uh, part of it is that um, I'm not afraid of uh, anything. Uh, in terms of like acting, um, things that I guess some people might find um, too dark or disconcerting, or I'll, I'll go, I'll go down into the to the mine. You know, I don't, I don't care. Uh, I, uh, I, I like it. Uh, that's what I like to do. Um, and, you know, in Killer Joe, you see, I think, a lot of 
as as kind of as much of a kind of pulpy story as it might seem like a true crime kind of trashy story i think it's really its genesis or its basis is really like deep family trauma and um it's a nice platform to exercise uh your demons i guess and uh or deal with things that um, you maybe just wouldn't have a, another opportunity to deal with. Um, because that's a great thing about theater is that in theater, what I realized early on is that you're able to do and say things that in normal life would get you in a lot of trouble, but when you do them on stage, people find them exciting, which is a great paradox of life is that we love to watch people do naughty things. And I, I really understand and appreciate that. I think with Bug, um, I mean, I'm, I, I would hesitate or be reluctant to say in front of all you swell people that I identify with paranoid schizophrenia, but um, I do think that like the world is a deeply disconcerting and strange place that is filled with uh, danger. So uh, I could identify with that. I also thought, but I think the main reason that I was suitable for Bug is that I, I think I, that I understood at the, at the core of it that Bug was really a, a love story. That's what it was. It wasn't like a, um, that these, these plays, despite, like I say, their sensationalistic elements, are actually uh, very human and humane plays about about people's hearts. They're not just meant to shock or provoke or or all these things. When when you got into acting on stage, did you have an idea of this is the kind of material I want to do or whatever kind of material you want to do? Like, what was the driving force behind getting you up on that stage in the first place? Oh, you. you <laughs> You just had to open the door and turn on the lights, man. I'd go on stage. I didn't. I didn't care. I mean, literally. I was. I was thinking about it the other day. I was, because I've been taking the train. Uh, the last few days, I've been taking the L, and I, I was going past the Wilson L stop, and I was thinking about, back when I. Yeah, this was not long after Fun and Nobody. I did this play called uh, The Cafe with No Name. And it was a lunchtime play. It was at lunch. And it was a serial so that the idea was that people on their lunch break from work could come and eat a sandwich and watch a goofy little play that would change every week so that they would come every week and see a new version, you know. And it was uh, written by uh, uh, Eric Spitznagel. That was his name, yeah. And uh, and nobody came to see it. Like nobody. Like we would do. Was there it, like one lonely person uh, with a bag of yeah, lunch just being with like some chips? All right, now what happens? Yeah. But I just kept showing up and doing it, and um, it was so weird because the guy who wrote it years later wound up interviewing me for Playboy magazine. No joke. Wow. Yeah. And we sat the first hour of the interview. We just sat and talked about. Cafe with no name. So did he thank you for, like, you know, helping him realize that he wanted to become a journalist? Because <laughs> this, yeah. whole, this whole lunchtime play thing just Didn't wasn't working work out. out. Well, he's still doing it. 
Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm kidding. No, he's not kidding. <laughs> in general, it seems like, this is another broad one, it seems like you're inclined to say yes to a lot of things. Um, and yes, there are a lot and. Of people, yes, yes and. and. No, I know. I was just with my friend from Second City who wrote the book called Yes And, and you seem like a quintessential yes and person. Is that a conscious thing where it's like, if I have the choice between doing something or not doing something, I'm going to do it. Well, like when people come up to me and ask me for advice and say, hey, I want to get in show business. I want to do what you did. Tell me how you did it. I'd be like, I am absolutely positive you have no interest in doing what I did. You, you would not last a day. Um, you have no long, you have no idea how long this took, how slow it was, and how many performances I did for three people to get to where I am today. But uh, I can tell you how I did it, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to want to do that. But um, yeah, I think one of the reasons that I'm sitting here doing this podcast right now is that, yeah, I was pretty much willing to do anything. I mean, except porn or snuff. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are not in that category, yeah. so we have him with us today, so yeah, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Um, no, it is, but it's like in, in certain films that we won't name, I mean, there were filmmakers who sort of took a shot in just sending you material where there was like no money, and you're just like, oh, I'm just going to, this just sounds like something I would like to do, and, and the other sort of calculations or sort of careerist calculations or money calculations a lot of people make, it seems like those are not foremost in your mind. No, I'm not a careerist. I never have been. I've never been even, I mean, I know this can't help but sound disingenuous, but I've never even really been interested in being famous. I just, I, I don't care. I just, there's a saying that if you want to be an actor, if you think there's anything else that you're remotely equally interested in doing, you should go do that instead. But uh, I'm not. Like, it's the only thing. I mean, I know music, but I, music falls into the same category, unfortunately. I think it might actually be even more brutal, brutally difficult to succeed at than acting is. So, um, yeah, I just... Uh, I, I, I couldn't help myself, really. I, I, and, and in Chicago in the 90s, it was... Uh, I think it's important to... And, I may be stating the obvious, maybe everybody here already knows this, but it was such an incredible time for the theater. There were so many incredible artists here, so much exploration and evolution and discovery. And I just hope the city as a whole is, is grateful for that because it was a special time, I thought. Absolutely. And, you you know, there's so many storefront theaters around in Chicago. Uh, you have these tiny theaters, um, you know, something like a Red Orchid. People are pretty close to you acting. It's not like you're acting at, you know, even the Goodman or Steppenwolf are sort of different from, you know, Red Orchid or The Gift or Steep or one of those. Um, how much did it sort of shape your career that you were working in these small rooms with people up close? I mean, in a sense, I would think that would kind of prepare you for when you're in front of a camera and it's reading your expressions. That's what the people in the theater are doing as well, as opposed to, you know, if you're at the, you know, Nederlander or something, you got to project to that, the back of that room. And that's just a different beast. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, whether it's Red Orchid or, or Next Lab, where I, did Fun of Nobody and Killer Joe or even somewhere like uh, the basement at Cafe Voltaire where I did a bunch of shows. Right. Um, 
I really love it because it feels like there's just no difference between the actors and the audience. It's really just like people in a room. And um, I know there's a kind of this unspoken rule that you let the actors say their lines and you sit there and listen to them, but just the, the energy of it is... Um, uh, it's something very uh, sacred to me. It's a, like a sacred thing. It's it's one of the highlights for me of being alive. Did you find that that skill and that feeling translated to when you were doing film? Because again, you know, it's reading your emotions. No, I see what you're saying about proximity and all that. But film's still a very, very different beast, uh, and 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 camera work. Um, because it's not just about the proximity; it's about um, uh, the yeah. It's if uh, films like or camera work, it's like it's like surgery. It's 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 kind of tedious and minute and exacting and stressful and and somebody's got to be knocked out and or no I'm just kidding um uh, it's not um it's not as free as theater you go out and you just and 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 you'll be doing something on camera and and you're like and then cut all right go somewhere for an hour and a half we'll get you when we need you and it's like it's 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 quite a tease, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was talking at to uh, at a Critics Institute workshop a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about the difference between like film and theater when they're sort of having to review these things. And and I was talking about performance, and one of them is it's an obvious point, and obviously you you experience this when you're doing any of this. Is that theater you're watching the performance, and film you're watching the director's choice of all the takes that the actor did and I'm you know so I would think you would feel less in control of film acting camera work um, and and I wonder sort of what the percentages of without naming films uh, what the percentages of like when you see a movie how much it reflects the way you thought that performance was going to come out um yeah you know I I'm never like I never storm out of the room and throw my hat on the floor and say they got it all wrong. You know, I don't, I've developed a very like Zen. I mean, I hate it when people say they've developed a Zen because no, they haven't. Nobody (laughs) has, but I've developed an attitude where it's like, you know what? You do it, you let it go. It's like a balloon. You, you let it go up into this guy. It goes and you know, whatever they do with it is what they do with it. Uh, I mean, the only alternative to that is to go, like, harass them during all of post-production. And having just directed a film, uh, you know, post-production is not, like, a f- warm, fuzzy place to go. Um, so, um, it's, I, I have no interest in, like, leaning over people's shoulders and saying, you know, you should really think about this, that, or the other thing. Um, and I do believe that filmmaking is... Uh, you know, there's a there's a school of thought where filmmaking is the director's medium, and television is the writer, creator's medium, producer's medium, and theater is the actor's medium. And that's always made a lot of sense to me. And it's not that you know you need all of those things to do any of those things, but um, but it, it it just makes sense to me. And I and if you work with a filmmaker and 
you don't like the result, that's uh, in a way that's kind of on you because you 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 need to do your research going into it, and you need to know. You know, not that every anybody bats a thousand, but you need to say, well, I'm I'm pretty much in tune with this person's instincts or their vision or based on what I've seen or whatever. And, and then and then you just got to give them permission to, to do what they want to do. Yeah, Harold Ramis had once told me that a film is actually three films. There's the film that you set out to make, the film that you think you're making, and then the film it turns out you made. Yeah. Um, and that was how he experienced it as a filmmaker and a writer. Um, I would imagine maybe you experienced that as an actor and also now as a director, if that applies as well. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that... Um you can be uh, very, very prepared and have a very, you know, clearly thought out vision in your head of, of something that you want to do. But um, time and circumstances and the universe always seem to uh, toss that in the air, you know. And, and thank God. I mean, that's, that's one of the more interesting components or aspects of, of, of the work, frankly. Yes, you do. If it's a Hero IPA from Revolution Brewing, this Chicago-based super brewer offers an array of heroes, no special effects needed. Leading the pack is Anti-Hero IPA, the classic that built Revolution with its crisp, clean bitterness and massive floral and citrus aromas. Hazy Hero, Illinois' number one hazy IPA, boasts a smooth, velvety body and a big fruit-forward flavor. And the balanced new Infinity Hero features exciting next-generation hop varieties. It's time to choose your hero. Yeah, baby. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> For this movie, Eric LaRue, you're working with Brett Nevue, who is the playwright and also the screenwriter. How did you end up working, deciding that this was what was going to get you in the director's chair? Well, I had just directed a play that Brett had written um, called Traitor, which was a modern uh, adaptation of uh, Enemy of the People. And um, yeah, he handed me the script uh, uh, at the closing of the play. Um, and so I read it, and uh, I, I had no intention of directing a movie. Uh, people had asked me often if I was going to do that, and I said, um, no, I don't want to do that. It doesn't look fun. Um, but uh, when I read that script, I saw it uh, so clearly, and I felt it, and I frankly thought, I, I have to direct it, because if I don't direct it and somebody else directs it, they're going to mess it up. So I'm the only one that can do it, obviously. So uh, that's basically what happened. So is there something in the tone of it that you thought, I'm just going to be able to capture this, and, or something in the content that you just related to theoretically? Yeah, well, I mean, Brett's such an extraordinarily unique writer, and he, what he does is so complex, and the tone of it is very hard to capture. Um... And I, I just love Brett. I mean, we've, we've worked together for a long time. I've known him a long time. 
And um, I remember when Red Orchid did the play version of Eric LaRue back in 2002 and how much that moved me, um, going to see it multiple times. And um, yeah, I just feel like it's, it's it's a it's a story. I mean, I, I don't want to say too much about it because I, I haven't even sold the darn thing yet. So I don't even know if anybody's ever going to see it. But uh, it says a lot of things about America that I find uh, crucially important. Judy Greer plays the mother of. Is it a school shooter? Is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eric, Eric LaRue is a boy who uh, kills three of his classmates. And so the movie concerns uh, Eric's parents and how they're dealing with the, the aftermath of that and trying to figure out why that might have happened and uh, why they didn't catch it before it did. Yeah. And what was it about that story that resonated with you? Hmm. Yeah, I've thought a lot about that. I've thought a lot about that. I mean, like I said earlier, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a... It's a little bit of a bait and switch because it, that is what it's about. It's also about a lot of other things. But uh, what, when I, I, I took a pause there because I actually as opposed to just rattling something off, I actually wanted to think for a second and think um, about that because, and what I realized in that little pause that I took is that I thought about myself and how when I was a teenager and the relationship I had with my parents and how little they seemed to understand me and how, despite the fact um, that we were mother, father, and son, we were complete strangers to one another and really had very little connection to one another. And this is something actually that Tracy touches on in, uh, <clears throat> in one of his plays about how you can be related to people and, and still not know them very well at all. And, but that this, this, the concept of family you know, blood relations, uh, uh, implying that you should be incredibly close to this person and understand everything about them is kind of uh, perhaps uh, not true. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and something obviously you're able to bring out in this film, which I can't wait to see. I know it debuted at the Tribeca Film Festival. It was very well received. And it now did. there's just this kind of, I mean, is it basically just the limbo of the, the strikes at this point? Yeah, and, and look, I am 100,000 million percent in support of the strikes and have uh, no desire to see them end until everything is... Uh, given to us that that we deserve um but it is it does put a little cramp on uh selling the movie yes right what is what is it by the way that you hope what is the outcome from the strike that you want to see just in terms of what the future is for actors for writers relationship with studios producers yeah well i was just at a big rally in times square in new york city with a bunch of other heavy hitters and uh, 
and I stood there and watched a bunch of people make beautiful speeches and um and it's pretty clear I mean uh the AI thing um see here's the thing I'm actually a real extremist because what what I want is for the tech companies to get the hell out of the entertainment industry entirely uh I want Amazon out of the entertainment industry I want Apple out of the entertainment industry I want them to go away as a matter of fact, if you really want to be my best friend, what you'll do is you'll never use Amazon again as long as you live. And I am here as a living example of a person who has somehow managed to never use Amazon. So if you think it's impossible, you're wrong, because I've done it. Can you keep your stuff off of Prime? Well, I can't control where my stuff gets streamed. I, I, but I have told producers... Time and time and again, I do not want to work for Amazon. I don't want to make movies for Amazon. Now, when I did blah, 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 that was Amazon. And so you can call me a big, fat hypocrite if you want. But uh, I didn't know at the time. When we made the movie, I, it hadn't been purchased yet. So right. it and you're not in control after, of that. I can't control who a producer sells a movie to. But that would be a great thing if uh, the tech companies just got out of the entertainment industry. Now, I know there's no way in hell that that's ever going to happen. But yes, you should not be able. When I was doing, um, I signed a contract. I can't believe this. There was a clause in the contract that said, we own your image in perpetuity throughout the universe even in other dimensions. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's not a joke. That was in my contract. You know, and now it would they say... They own my image in other dimensions. See, now it would say, it wouldn't even say universe, it would say the multiverse, just to sort of cover all of those things. I guess. I don't know. I was like... Wow. I mean, it's just, it, was like, it felt like a, it should have been written in crayon. I'm like, this isn't serious, right? But it is. It's really serious. No, that's one of these things where, where I've seen some people talking about this, and you think, oh, this sort of sounds crazy, but it's like, yeah, we have the right to use your likeness and your voice and make other movies with you in it, and you don't get any participation or have any control over, you know, right. what, what it is. I mean, this is a perfect example. The, the, the wonderful, uh, our, one of our lead, nego the lead negotiator, I think, for SAG, his name is uh, Duncan, he... He told this amazing allegory. He's like, uh, let's say you're a young actor and they hire you for one of these franchise superhero movies and you're going to be the, the blue avoider or something. But in the, in the first one, you're, you just kind of have a few scenes, but, there's, they, but they tell you like in the next one, you're going to get a little more. And then like in the fifth one, it's going to be all about you. So you just got to wait. What they can do with AI is you could do the first one and do a couple of scenes and then they could just lift what you do and then make all the other Blue Avoider movies without you. And so, you know, Robert Downey Jr. became a bazillionaire off of Brr and, uh, and but in this new reality, he would, he would not become a bazillionaire. Uh, he would not make anything because they could just go and make as many of those as they wanted and he wouldn't even have to show up or know anything about it. Um, 
Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying everybody should feel tremendously sorry for people that make millions and millions of dollars off doing ridiculous comic book movies uh, that they no longer have that opportunity. Maybe that, uh, you know, now that I think about it, may not be such a bad thing. I don't know. But there are a lot of other actors out there who are not making millions of dollars. Yeah. And, you know, and what this never, really they'll is never about, get that first break. They'll never get those first millions right. of dollars from the comic book movie because right. they're just going to be AI. Well, and what this is really about is, is, is really about like background artists. That, that, that's who they can really screw over is just taking people's image and just saying, well, we don't even need to hire extras anymore. Um, we don't need them at all. And then there are people that make a living, uh, get their health care, you know, doing things like that. And um, or day players or guest stars or whatever. I mean, that's how I started out. I mean, I started out here in Chicago. I did so many day player spots, you know, and like my sometimes people are like, your IMDb page has so many credits on it. I'm like, yeah, about 40 of those is me like showing up and me like, hey, watch out. Or give me the crack. You know, it's like, you know. But, but that's, how you, that's how you start, you know. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I, I, I think we're going to bend them to our will, I think. It seems like one of those things that you would say, you say it out loud to people and they'd be like, well, of course you're right. And then it's just sort of the will of the big companies to say, no, we're going to actually push this ridiculous thing, even though everyone thinks it's wrong. And that's sort of where we are as a culture right now, where it's like the, wait a minute, we, we, we brought the ridiculous thing to light. Why doesn't the ridiculous thing go away? Well, I think, I think what's heartening to me is it's, it's not just in my industry. There's so many, there's kind of a groundswell mass feeling of we're just, you know, yeah, I, you know, when you look at the poor UPS workers or like trying to get air conditioning in their trucks or uh, nurses or teachers, I mean, you just see all over the place, like we, this, this isn't right. And, and I think if we all, anytime we see any of these uh, groups engaged in this kind of struggle, if we all support them and and if each of these groups supports one another, I mean, one of the most beautiful things when I was at Times Square is, as as great as all the speeches were, were all the trucks going by and just honking their horns. And there was one guy who literally just kept driving around and driving <laughs> past us, and he was had this massive semi, just this really big horn, and just like. And that's how you do in Times Square. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. And, but he was so into it, and. Um, yeah, I just think, uh, I, I think there's, at the end of the day, there's more of us than them, you know? They're outnumbered. So let's, yeah. yeah. And I have seen some talk about, you know, the, the possibility of, well, we could still make movies and just distribute them ourselves. Well, that's what I like about this whole waiver thing that's happening with SAG. It's so amazing is that SAG is actually allowing certain independent productions to, to take place and they get a waiver. But in order to get that waiver, they have to sign an agreement that is basically what SAG is asking for. So if the movie gets made and somebody buys it, they have to agree to all these provisions. That's, that is exactly why SAG's on strike right now. So it's like you could really see a throwback to like earlier in the independent era. You know, you I, I wouldn't mind it at all if... if 
you know, we, we, we could just stay on strike and create a whole different industry that's just small independent films, you know? I mean, that'd be a lot more interesting than, sorry, uh, such and so and blah, blah, that's playing right now. Right. <laughs> so I want to ask you about last night, and then I'm going to take questions from you all out there, because I know you have some. Um, so last night you played... REM songs with Jason mm. Arducci and uh, mm-hmm. Mike Mills at the end and, and a lot of other cool, uh, wonderful musicians. Um, coming off that at the end, did you, how did you feel compared to how you feel coming off of like an intense theater performance? Is it a similar adrenaline or is it just much more, you know, aside from being more hoarse? I, I had a lot of feelings. I mean, I, I was um, incredibly profoundly filled with joy um, that I got to play with such an incredible, spectacular band. All of those musicians worked so hard and we played a lot of songs. You did. And um, thanks. They, they learned all those songs and those are not easy songs to play. It's not easy to play guitar like Peter Buck or bass like Mike Mills. And then you got, when you're the bass player, <laughs> he literally had Mike Mills standing in front of him on stage. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be a little nervous. So, uh, yeah, I was also still on cloud nine about that. About, like, I remember the first time he walked on stage, it was strange. I didn't know that Mike was up there. And the crowd just started cheering. And I thought, man, I'm killing it. <laughs> they're, they're into this, baby. And I'm like... And then it started to seem a little weird. I was like, now, wait a minute. This, is, this isn't the right part in the song for people to get all excited. And then I looked to my right, and I'm like, hey, dumbass, look, there's Mike Mills. That's why everybody's so excited. I wondered who was seeing those Mike Mills harmonies on Harbor Coat. Oh, uh, yeah, that was something. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. So did you not know he was coming on stage? No, what happened was he's friends with Jason. He actually, I believe, I'm not getting this wrong, played bass for Jason once. I think it was the second split single album. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, Jason, when we were putting the show together, Jason reached out to him and he said, look, man, I'm, I'm going to be on vacation. I don't, I don't think it's a good time. But I think Shanahan, uh, Joe Shanahan from Metro applied a little pressure and then, um, and then um, a, a woman who used to be a manager at Metro and also used to, I think, work at the 40 Watt Club in Athens. Uh, she said, come on, Mike, you, I, I got, I'll get you a ticket. And so he, he showed up um, like uh, he, he literally showed up right before the show. And he was at the airport. He was having trouble with his luggage. He texted Jason. He's like, I don't, I'm having trouble with my luggage. And so we didn't know if he was even going to make it. And then we're, it's literally like 10 minutes before we go on stage. And we're doing this thing that Jason likes to do where we go through the, the beginning of all the songs and make sure everybody knows how everything starts. And we're about halfway through doing that. And the door, Shanahan opens the door and says, hey, everybody, look who it is. And it's Mike Mills. And Scott Lucas uh, from Local H, who was playing a couple songs in the encore, immediately like turned towards me and like ran into the corner like and he, he looked like it was like a little kid seeing Santa Claus or something he was gonna start crying or something and uh and Jason said you know you want to come up and he's like no you've been working so hard and I'm I'm just I'm just here to support and I don't want to 
you know, t hog the stage or whatever. And so Jason was like, okay, well, I hope you enjoy it. And then little next thing you know, he's, uh, he's up there. But it was beautiful about the way he participated because he really didn't step on anybody's toes. He didn't, like, come up and, like, grab an instrument or something. He just he, he joined in in a way that was very harmonious, no pun intended. And, um, yeah, it didn't steal the spotlight, really. He was just having fun. Did you have a moment of, holy crap, I'm singing with Mike Mills? Uh-huh. <laughs> Does it feel like when you've done that or when you did uh, Modern Lovers here in January, you did Neil Young, you've done The Cars, you've done The Smiths. Does it feel like you're preparing for a role? I mean, I guess a little bit, but not, not, not really, but kind of. Um, I mean... Because in a way, yeah, they're all characters. I mean, that's the, that's one of the main reasons I think that they have staying power is they really are distinctive characters. I mean, there's nobody, there's no one else like Michael Stipe. There's no one else like Morrissey or Neil Young. You know, they're very, they're iconic. And, and part of that, in addition to their extraordinary music, musicianship and their gifts with songwriting and whatnot is their just their persona. Yeah. Not that I'm a dead ringer for any of these people, but I, I think about it. Yeah. I think about it. Yeah. I mean, you, and you've had your own band as well, corporal and you still write songs. Um, does doing, does doing these shows ever make you think, you know what I could see, you, you know, just pursuing that for a while, making some albums, going on tour, hitting the clubs and having that kind of life for, you know, a different thing. Yeah. Well, it would, it would seem like now would be the time to do that. Uh, <laughs> I've thought about it. Um, I don't know. I get nervous. I, I have a lot of um, unfinished songs in my head that I can't ever seem to finish. Um, maybe I'm being lazy or something. I, I, I don't know. But I now I've gotten to the point where rather than finish these songs, I prefer to just go sing someone else's songs, um, which is kind of... There's something kind of lame about that, I guess. I, yeah, I should really kick my own butt and do another record or something. I guess I guess part of it, maybe, if I'm being brutally honest, is that I put a lot into the first record I made, and I don't really think anybody gave a flying rat's ass. So I, I maybe got a little discouraged by that. Because, yeah, come on. <laughs> I still have boxes of the CDs in my closet. I'm like... You should make a suit out of these or something. We need a merch table. Yeah, yeah, right. right. Well, over your left shoulder is uh, what I'm going to refer to as Chekhov's guitar, which is Chekhov's we, we, put, guitar. we put it there in the first act. It has to go off in the third <laughs> act. Right. Uh, do you want to play it? You want to play something? Yeah. Say something? Play one of those oh, finished oh, songs? God bless you. It's hard because a lot of the songs uh, are better with more people than just me um i'm not like dylan or something but i did write this one song about a guy i knew here in chicago named ben buyer does that name ring a bell to anybody ben buyer was an actor and he lived here and um and a writer and um he was a poker player and 
I was in a poker game that Tracy Letts played in a lot and uh, some other people, an actor named Troy West, maybe some people know him, and, and Ben uh, played in this game. And Ben was an amazing poker player and he always won when he came. And he had this big shit-eating grin every time. He'd win and he'd smile and then he'd leave. <laughs> and then, um, one day Ben got diagnosed with ALS. And uh, me and a lot of other people in the theater community uh, watched him, uh, yeah, die. So uh, when I was making the first record that I made, the only record I made, I wrote a song about him. And uh, that's what popped in my head when you asked me if I'd play a song. So I'll do that. Just the least of what I am 
sort of sing along? Do you come up with lyrics first, music first? How do you do this? I write on, well, I do it both ways. Sometimes I'll come up with chords and then put some words on them. I didn't realize until years later, after I wrote that song, I was playing a David Berman tribute, the Silver Jews singer. I was playing a David Berman tribute in Brooklyn after he died, and um, I played Buckingham Rabbit. I don't know if anybody knows that song, but... Um, I realized I stole those chords from Buckingham Rabbit. I dreamt I had a Buckingham Rabbit. I've been lonely since she found Christ. There are a lot of, there are a lot of songs that use the same chords. Yeah. It chords are, are fair game. You're good. Yeah. That was excellent. That was awesome. Do you want to I also that? have songs that I just make up in my head that I don't even know how to play them, which is really frustrating. Because I can't. <laughs> You're a real card, you know that? Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. Do you want me to play another song? Jesus. If you want to, I don't know. I can barely sing. You notice that, right? You sound good. You sound, you, 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 I mean, given what you did last night, you sound yeah. awesome. You sound awesome even if you didn't do that Okay, last well, night. this is not a, this is not a nice song, though. Um, it's kind of a, a, a not nice song, but I'll play it. i 
Any backstory on that one? <laughs> I'll leave that up to the imagination. <laughs> Well, that was awesome. I want to um, bring up some people uh, who want to ask questions in case any of you have anything you want to ask Mr. Shannon. Hey, Mike. Hey there. Had a great time Metro last night. Thanks was, for coming. It was a blast. Thank you. Um, I got a music question and a uh, movies question. Okay. Um, now, you've done a lot of albums live. A lot yeah. of them are kind of like you know, deep cuts like, you know, Zuma. Yep. Are, do you have any other, like, bucket list albums you and Jason got planned? Like, one day we got to do this? I want to do more songs about buildings and food. <laughs> but I feel like I'd really have to play guitar if I did that. Because I think that's like burn with that guitar in his hands. I don't think I could do that without a guitar. Yeah. Like, he's such an amazing rhythm guitar player. But I can't play like him, so I don't know. I'd have to work really hard on it then. Um, when you did the Modern Lover song here, it's a show here, you did for the encore, you did a couple of those really talking head songs. I, I did, did one. Like, I did Love, love, love to a Building, building on, on Fire, fire yeah. And it seemed, to be, it seemed to go quite well. Uh, it seemed like people liked it more than all the Modern Lover songs I played. I was like, Jesus. I don't know. I don't mean to sound like fishing for compliments or anything. But yeah, that's one. Um, what else? I don't know. That's the one on my mind right now is more songs about buildings and food because that's, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, movies question, yeah. more about like directing. Yes. Now, you said when you read the script that you immediately envisioned it mm -hmm. and you're compelled to like get on board. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering... How far do you envision it? Like, you, do you have like a cinematographer in mind, an editor in mind, and then oh, yeah. you have that, but then how much is just kind of, you got that skeleton in the script, but how much then is improvised? You got to have some kind of wiggle room, right? Oh, well, definitely. I mean, for example, there was a cinematographer that I was desperate to work with uh, that I had worked with a couple of times before named Bobby uh, Bukowski and um, and he very graciously agreed to do the movie but by the time um, the movie actually came around he wasn't available so I had to hire somebody else like on the spot and I'm extraordinarily happy with who wound up doing it but it, he's very different from, from Bobby and I also I, Bobby was like a kind of a mentor like it was somebody because I, I it was it was the one thing I thought might be my blind spot you know um uh, I just didn't know much about it and I I knew Bobby would take care of me but when it came down to it and I wound up working with Andrew Wheeler who did a phenomenal job but I I was like you know what you you, you can handle this uh you, you know more about it than you think you do and and Andrew will help you and, and it was fine but um and there were lots of last-minute changes. I mean, we were supposed to shoot the movie in uh, Arkansas, and then the um, Roe v. Wade got overturned, and Arkansas was the first state to enact their trigger laws, and uh, they were very severe. There was no gray area. It was just like, boom. And I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said, isn't it upsetting what's happening? And I said, yeah. I said, I'm about to go shoot in Arkansas. And she's like, well, don't. <laughs> and I said, um, 
I said, well, we're supposed to start in like a month and a half, month. And she's like, okay, well, do what you got to do. So then I called my producer, God bless her, Sarah Green. And I said, what do you think about if we moved out of Arkansas? And she's like, but we're supposed to start. I'm like, I know, I know. But she she agreed, and so we moved. So then we wound up in um, Wilmington, North Carolina, which is very different. Not what I had. I had imagined somewhere kind of bleak and gray and, you know, Midwestern. Um, uh, and then all of a sudden I'm in, like, this lush southern metropolis i'm like this isn't exactly what i thought but but it all it all worked out fine uh it was actually a lot of fun finding locations and 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 making it feel right yeah but yeah you do as much as you have like it's kind of what like what i said earlier is it, it is your responsibility to have a very clear distinct vision but also to be able to be uh malleable at the same time thanks mike you're welcome uh hi karen Mike. Hey, Michael, how hey. are you? Thanks for coming. Good, yeah, sure. Um, I have a question. What You've had such a great opportunity to work with such great directors. Yeah. Um, who was your favorite? Why? Favorite. And how did it impact you with your own directing on your film? Well, Jeff. Jeff. Je- Jeff. Jeff N. Jeff, yeah. Not dimes. Yeah, not dimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I, I mean, my, uh, you know, my relationship with Jeff is. Quite, we can mention Jeff Nichols. Quite, I'm just quite say extensive, Jeff and well, and Jeff is also uh, an executive producer on the movie and um, on Eric Larue, and which I think I can say. And I showed him my cut, which was very. Uh, it was a beautiful thing. He. Uh, he, he, he more than probably anybody else I talked to after I showed him my original director's cut uh, really gave me a lot of uh, guidance um, not even necessarily in a, in a specific thing like oh you know this scene where the they're drinking out of the pink cup they you know it should be blue or something like that it was just more like an overall he's like this is what this process is like this is what it's going to feel like um you have work to do, but it's okay. Um, don't ever take a note just at face value, but rather think about why somebody said what they said and then do what you want to do. Uh, uh, just a bunch of stuff that is, is kind of esoteric out of context. But um, it's just so fascinating to me because, like, it's one of those examples of because when I when I first started with Jeff, uh, he was like the pupil, and I was like the, the you know the old timer, not the old timer, but I'd been around, and and it's kind of like reversed now. Like you know he's he's just such a gigantic uh, talent, and uh, and a r- real brother to me. So yeah, it'd probably be Jeff. Yeah. Hi. Great to be here with you tonight. Thank you. I am um, first I just want to say that everybody's gonna see Eric LaRue. Oh, cool. It's gonna be a big movie and everybody's gonna see Thank it. Thank you. I and, really appreciate that positive energy. Yeah, Thank and you. um 
And I can say that because I live across the street from Columbine High School oh. in Colorado. Is Becky from Colorado? One of your sisters is from Colorado. I have two sisters, sisters that live in Colorado, yeah. but they're on my father's side. Okay. Uh, the and other Becky's sisters. on my mom's side. Anyhow, yeah. so they know. Yeah. The sisters know. One That's what I'm saying so, to these distributors. Yeah. I'm like, there are people that really yeah, it's gonna be want big. to see this. And yeah. it's kind of unbelievable that 20 years later, 20 three years later that there hasn't even been a big film about it. Yeah. The subject matter. Yeah. So, and then the other thing I, I just wanted to ask you was on the six part series that should not be remade. <laughs> have you thought and just want to encourage you about your country, about going into some country uh, music because country music. people went insane for your singing <laughs> and your voice on oh, that. So would that be something I don't that you know would if, consider? I think I might have lost it. Oh, I don't no, know if it's coming back. Um, yeah, yeah, I love country music. Um, I love it so much. I think a lot of the great American singers are country singers, the, the best ones, like Lefty Frizzell. I mean, the one, that's one of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard, and Mr. Mr. J. And um, Roy Acuff and Hank Williams. and uh, Yeah, um, I don't know... I don't know. I don't know if I have it in me to become a country troubadour myself. I might be. I might be a little late in, on life's highway for that. But um, uh, I'll, I'll consider it. I'll keep. Uh, maybe maybe that'll be my next record, a country record. Maybe I should give it a whack. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So I had a couple questions. I was wondering where your favorite places in Chicago are to just be like you know, kind of like into yourself. Cause I live in Rogers park and there's, you know, I have thankfully the beach right next to me, but there's like, you know, there's not a lot of fun places to just go chill and really listen to music over there. So I was wondering where your favorite places were. And I was also wondering what your favorite songs to perform live are. Oh, wow. Yeah. My favorite thing to do uh, that I do a lot is uh, a walk along the lake um, so um, I'm I'm in the old town area uh, Karen who asked a question earlier is my neighbor and um, um, uh, if you go straight east on North Avenue you get to the North Avenue Beach mm-hmm. and there's that yeah there's that that like I don't know what the official term is for it, but it's like that curly cue that goes out in the water and it has that little (laughs) tower on it about halfway out and then I just I'll walk that and then I turn around and walk back and then I'll walk all the way down to like that weird little park just before you get to Navy Pier it's like some it's got a gate around it yeah you walk to the end of it and then there's another gate that looks like some ominous (laughs) tower company or something I don't know what that place is but is that what yeah so I I walk I've been walking that a lot actually getting ready for the concert last night I would walk back and forth and listen to the records um, over and over Uh, and then Oh man, my favorite place. I mean, I love, I love to eat here. Um, that's no shocker. I mean, um, I, my, I love to go to a vet. I usually make I go to a vet because I love those uh, dates. 
And I love the brandad. And uh, they always have really interesting ice cream that I like. And, um, and songs to sing live. Wow. I mean, I sang a lot of them last night. I mean, it really, it was mind-blowing. Um, but like, um, I mean, I, I like the songs I made. Uh, I made this song called Folklore. It's like a really super long song. Oh, who whooped? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, well, it's, it's like 12 minutes long, and I really need a band in order to play it because it's, it's uh, pretty epic. But what I'm pissed off about, so that you know, is that um, so I wrote this song, Folklore, which I'm probably my most proudest of of this song, and then Taylor Swift released an album called Folklore. So I'm pretty chafed about that. And you know, she's causing earthquakes. That was the last story I saw about Taylor Swift is that her concerts are creating a seismic activity. Yeah. But, I mean, I, my, my daughter went to see her for her birthday here in Chicago at Soldier Field, so I can't, I can't get too uptight about it. Thanks. Actually, a follow-up to the last question uh, on kind of favorite songs to sing live. Yeah. Um, before you were so rudely interrupted by Mike Mills last night, <laughs> you were uh, telling a story about uh, these days and how you yeah. had fantasize because I did the same. I think a lot of us were so attuned to that record growing up with it, yeah. and that song in particular was is just like something you just want to get out. Yeah. Um, and but Mike Mills interrupted you, so I, no, I just want to okay. give you an opportunity. It's okay. Uh, it was. Um, yeah, that song is really cathartic. Uh, but that's. I mean, that's the brilliant thing about what they did about particularly what I guess what Stipe did um, and you know I don't want to brag or nothing but I actually got the opportunity to meet him um, it was really interesting we were at the, I was at the Berlin Film Festival and he was there to see a film that was there because he was friends with one of the people that was in the movie I was in. So I got to meet him. And then he had a big, big beard. Like he looked like, like I was gonna say, no, no, this, <laughs> maybe, yeah, that's good. Um, and then, and then uh, like a couple of, a couple of years later, uh, I was, was feature for a mag this weird little art magazine and and they said yeah we, we want to do an interview with you and and michael stipe's going to take your pictures i'm like what, michael stipe yeah and i said wow okay because he's uh, he's a photographer too um so then i was like oh hey i saw you before he's like yeah i'm going to take your picture is that cool i'm like it's pretty damn cool yeah <laughs> You go right ahead, buddy. And so he took a lot of my pictures, and then, and then it just kept running into each other. And he's the nicest guy, and Mills is the nicest guy. I haven't met Peter Buck or Bill Barry yet, so 
two down, two to go. Well, the baseball project is here at the end of August, two right. nights. Peter Buck and Mike Mills in the baseball project, along with Scott McCoy and Steve Wynn and Linda Pittman, awesome dot drummer. So I think they're sold out, but you should try to come because they're pretty awesome. And it's just seeing, you know, these guys. And I can rush his stage. Singing songs. That you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get out of the way. Exactly. But. Yeah, is the second one sold out also, or is that... Okay, it's good. So come out to see the Baseball Project. They're awesome. And uh, it's Mike Mills and Peter Buck. And, by the way, Scott McCoy, who was in REM from, I don't know, the later tours on and, and on those records as well. Uh, and uh, Steve Wynn from Dream Syndicate. And Linda Pittman, who's an uh, awesome drummer. So a little plug for that. Hi. Hi. Hello. Uh, how are you? Oh, pretty spectacular. Can't you tell? <laughs> uh, I was just wondering, do you have any advice for someone who wants a life in the theater and on film and behind the scenes and doing it all? Right on. So what, what stage in your life are you at right now? Um, approaching my senior year in high school and having some experience in college. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, are you doing, uh, are you doing theater in school? Yeah, and I act outside of school also. Oh, you do? Yeah. Well, you see, you're, already, you're on your way. What do you do? Where, where do you do that at? Um, I have an agent, so I've done, like, a commercial, and I've had a guest star, but I also do, like, musicals at, like, a local theater place. Okay. So, it's interesting the way you framed the, the question, because you said a life in the theater. Like, you're really, you're not just interested in being, like, a movie star or something. You want to do, do theater. Like, yeah. I mean... I want to do everything. <laughs> you want to do everything. Wow. Well, yeah. Um, well, uh, have you read um, all the books about acting and stuff yet? <laughs> you, could, you could read those. Okay. They're pretty interesting. <laughs> There's a book by Uta Hagen called Respect for Acting. You could read that. You could read Sanford Meisner's book. That's one of my favorites. There's the Stanislavski books. Reading is uh, is good. Um, do you write? I try to. Yeah. Yeah. If you can generate your own material, that's always helpful. Or, you know, or come up with something new. I mean, that was that was what worked for me. Is because uh, like you can do an amazing production of. Uh, all my sons or whatever, but everybody's already seen it. But if you can actually make something that uh, nobody's seen before that's yours, that then that's a way to get, you know, some ownership of what you're doing. Um, yeah, it's kind of like what I said earlier. It's, it's just, about, it's really about finding a way to enjoy doing it no matter how hard the world insist on making it unenjoyable if that makes any sense like um like i used to do plays and i remember i was doing this play hurley burley uh it was like in um down by where the blommers chocolate factory is yeah there was a little theater called pillar studio and they had rented out um uh, a loft in this building and we're doing Hurley Burley which is like a gigantic three act play that goes on forever and it had four guys 
and three women. So it's a cast of seven. Uh, and it's a big deal to do this play. It's very taxing. And one night, uh, two people showed up to see it. And everyone else in the cast was like, let's invite them to another performance on the house and let's all go get drunk. And I said, no, we're doing the play. And they all got mad at me. And I said, look, do you think that any one of you actually has figured out how to do this play yet? That you figured out everything about this play? Like, aren't you, don't you understand what an amazing opportunity it is to do this? Even if there's just two people watching it? Like, you have to be that crazy to think things like that. And then maybe you know, you'll get to spend your life in the theater. But there's other people that spend their life in the theater that don't do that, like Ben Platt. I don't think Ben Platt ever did that. He's just like a, a, an insanely famous musical star. Um, but that's, a, I don't know, that's how I did it. I only have my own life to go by, you know? Was, I was just, I was obsessed. I was obsessed and that's it. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. All right, we're going to take one more on the uh, stage right, and then... Cool. Hey, Michael. Hey, there. Good to see you. Nice to see you. Um, so, I hear you're with this Red Orchid Theater. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of that awesome uh, performances coming up this season, and maybe the one that you're in? Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, for... If there's one person who perhaps doesn't know this, I'm with a theater called A Red Orchid. We were down in Old Town on Wells Street. We've been here for 30 years. 30 years, which is pretty fantastic for a little tiny theater. Um, and uh, our first show the next season is a new play by Brett Nevue, who wrote uh, Eric LaRue and Trader and has written ungodly amounts of plays that we've done at Red Orchid and been done around town. He's in our ensemble. And it will be starring Natalie West, who you might be familiar with. Natalie West is an amazing actress in our company who is on television for a long time. And she is learning to play guitar for this show. So picture this, but instead of me, Natalie West. And um, and it's directed by Travis Knight, who's our new. Uh, well, he's been it's been a while now, but he's our associate artistic director, a wonderful fella. And then um, the second show is, I believe, called In Quietness, which will be directed by uh, Dado, our wonderful uh, resident uh, director there. And Sadia uh, was going to be in it, but I think she's moving to Nashville with her husband, so I don't know. I don't know so much about that one. The third show I'm going to be in is called Turret. It's by Levi Holloway, who just had a, sh a show on Broadway, Grey House, which premiered at a Red Orchid Theater. Um, yeah, and um, I'm going to be doing, it's just me, and, at this point it's just me and Travis, who I was talking about earlier, Travis Knight. So it's a two-hander. I think, I think Levi's going to direct it himself, which we're excited about. And we're going to do the show, not at the Red Orchid space, but we're going to do it at the Chopin Theater on Division. Yeah, we're going to do it in the big theater 
upstairs. We, uh, Levi, Travis, Kirsten, and myself were actually there uh, a couple of days ago, uh, daydreaming about it. And um, yeah, we, 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 we've signed the deal and we're going to rent it out and that's where we're going to do it. And that'll be in the spring. So that's our season. Yeah. Thanks for asking. It's very cool that you're still that deeply involved in it. Like, you, you make the time for that. And, you know, if, if someone came with a movie role in, you know, late April for you, you'd be like, no, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know. If the strike's still going. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, no, I would never. I would never. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about this play. I've never gotten to work with Travis, uh, and he's been in the company a few years now so um and i love i love two-person plays i just find them really exciting but now levi's like well maybe i'll add a character i'm like i wouldn't don't add a character and leave it the way it is yeah two two people but who am i to say all right i'll take one bonus question because you've been standing there nicely how's it going? Hey. Oh, I recognize you. Did I meet you last night? Yeah, I was yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wait, long, were you in the front row? Yeah. Was I, did I sing in your face? You were like right Yeah, yeah, I sang in your face. Yeah, yeah. Highlight oh. of the year, for sure. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, um, I just wanted to know, like, when you're making music, who are your influences? What genres are you mainly pulling from? And, like, I know you said you played bass in high school, so, like, is there any maybe jazz in what you're thinking about? So well, I love jazz. Jazz is my favorite music, but I can't play Me it too. For, for. I can't play it. Um, I can't play. I, I, I used to be able to play like very rudimentary songs in jazz band, but um, yeah, my influences. I mean, the, I, my musical appetite is so uh, wide ranging. You know, my, my taste, I should say, rather. Um, it's all over the shop. I mean, you can see by uh, the records that I played, they're kind of all over the shop, really. Um, but, um, yeah, I think um, my favorite artist um, of all time is Thelonious Monk. Mm. He's my favorite. Yeah, I... I uh, 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 Basically, of any even mode of art, I mean, just period, he's my favorite. I remember when I saw Straight No Chaser, I, when I, was, I think I was 16, I was in Evanston, I was at my dad's apartment and watched Straight No Chaser, and I just fell deeply in love with that guy. So, um, he influences me in a lot of ways, I think. Um, not just in music, but or his music uh, influences my mind. <laughs> so, yeah. Michael Shannon, everybody, thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fantastic. Thanks, Mark. 
Thanks, Thank everybody. you so much Thanks to Space, which is one of my, which is my favorite place. Thanks so much to the bar staff, the box office staff. Hope you all tip them well. Thanks to Chris Swake, my producer, Dan Glomsky, who does a fantastic job with sound here. Thank you to Tess Hoopengarner, who uh, t- was in charge of the back of the house. Rosemary Anguiano, who uh, did a lot of the work uh, setting this up, as well as Davis Inman. Space is a fantastic place. Uh, please listen to Carol Pop on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or carolpop.com. Thanks for being here and uh, appreciate you all. Thank you so much. Thank you.